have you ever sprung a leak in your pipes? Maybe it's a cold winter morning and the pipes burst, or despite your best handyman efforts, you make a hole. What would you do? You'd likely grab something, towels, tape, old gum, you name it, to block the flood of water pouring out. Well, in the body, you grab platelets. Like tiny band-aids, they float through your blood, ready to adhere to your endothelium at a moment's notice to stop a bleed. Today on our show, we talk about these body band-aids. Specifically, we will teach you how to approach a patient with low platelets, otherwise known as thrombocytopenia. Today, our patient has thrombocytopenia, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by internal medicine residents, meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is titled Paucity of Platelets. Time for our minute physiology. Platelets are made in your bone marrow. They do not have a nucleus of their own and are not actually cells. They are fragments that bleb off of much larger cells known as megakaryocytes. Each megakaryocyte can make 1,000 to 5,000 platelets. Production is regulated by thrombopoietin, or TPO, which is produced primarily in the liver. TPO binds to receptors on megakaryocytes and platelets. The more platelets, the less free TPO, and the less megakaryocytes are stimulated to produce more. This is how your body regulates platelet production. Once platelets are released, they survive for 8-10 to days in the blood, until they are removed by monocytes and macrophages in the liver and spleen. Most platelets spend their time circulating throughout the body, while the remainder spend their days in the spleen, which normally sequesters one-third of platelets. Within blood vessels, circulating platelets are pushed to the outer edges of the vessels, where they roll along the surface of the endothelium. When an injury occurs, the platelets use the surface receptors to stick to the damaged areas. Adherence causes platelet activation, resulting in the release of intracellular granules full of molecules that activate more platelets, cause vasoconstriction, and contribute to platelet aggregation. Activation also causes them to change shape and clump together, to form the initial seal or platelet plug, also known as primary hemostasis. The platelet plug then serves as the scaffolding for the coagulation cascade, which is a separate pathway which converts the plug into a stable clot. This is called secondary hemostasis. The clot is broken down over time by plasmin through the process of fibrinolysis. Now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. Thrombocytopenia is defined as a platelet count less than 150,000 per microliter, although usually we drop the thousands and just say less than 150, with the thousands implied. A platelet count of 100 to 149 is considered mild, 50 to 99 moderate, and less than 50 severe thrombocytopenia. Remember that it is important to get previous values to determine the trend. A platelet count of 150 is more concerning if the person had a count of 300 the day before. Before we go through the history and physical exam for thrombocytopenia, let's briefly talk about the different causes, as this will help you to direct your exam. Remember at the start of the podcast when we called platelets tiny band-aids? Well, it turns out that this analogy is also helpful for remembering the etiology of thrombocytopenia. Platelets, or band-aids, are just like any other mass-produced product on the market. Let's pretend you're at your local corner store in need of some blood-stopping band-aids, only to find the band-aid section is nearly empty. If there are fewer band-aids on the shelf, you have to ask yourself why. Perhaps there is a problem at the band-aid factory, and fewer band-aids are being manufactured in the first place. In the case of platelets, this means a problem in the bone marrow, aka the body's platelet factory, causing decreased production from megakaryocytes. 
Disorders that cause decreased production of platelets may also affect other cell lines, so you can see pancytopenia, low hemoglobin and leukocyte count on the CBC. Things like nutritional deficiencies such as vitamin B12, drugs such as inhibitors of DNA synthesis or chemotherapy, alcohol, infections, and inflammation all decrease bone marrow production. Primary bone marrow problems like myelodysplastic syndrome or aplastic anemia can also have isolated thrombocytopenia. If the marrow is replaced by something else, like hematologic malignancies, lymphoma, myeloma, or leukemia, solid tumor metastases, fibrosis, or granulomatous disease, you can also see less production. A second reason why you might see fewer band-aids on the shelf is that someone else has already purchased them. In the body, we refer to this as increased destruction and or consumption. Antiplatelet antibodies are made in certain conditions like immune thrombocytopenia or ITP, and they bind to platelets and cause macrophages to destroy them prematurely. ITP can be idiopathic, or it can be triggered by something else, such as infectious like HIV, hepatitis C, and EBV, and diseases like lupus, antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, and lymphoproliferative disorders such as chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Drugs can also cause ITP, like heparin, anti-epileptic therapies, and antibiotics. Finally, platelets can also be destroyed by non-immune processes, like sheer stress from damaged endothelial cells, and increased consumption. This is called microangiopathic destruction and is the underlying mechanism for diseases like DIC, disseminated intravascular coagulation, TTP, thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, HUS, hemolytic uremic syndrome, and HELP, hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelet syndrome. Finally, if the band-aids aren't on the shelf, maybe they're hidden in the stockroom. The store doesn't realize they are low on supplies because their computer system still shows band-aids as being present. This is just like the spleen and platelets, where the spleen is the stockroom. When the spleen gets large in diseases like cirrhosis and portal hypertension, it can suck up or sequester extra platelets, taking on up to 90% of the body's supply. The body doesn't realize it because TPO, thrombopoietin, which drives platelet production, binds to platelets no matter where they are. So there will not be extra TPO around to stimulate the megakaryocytes, even though all the platelets are trapped in the spleen. Okay, now that we understand why platelets might be low, let's learn how to take a focused history and physical exam. Just remember, as with any patient that comes in, you should always start by assessing their stability. You can do this by asking yourself, what are the patient's vitals? What is their GCS? Are their ABCs stable? An additional point to observe in a patient with severe thrombocytopenia is whether they have signs of active bleeding, which may mean emergent platelet transfusion is needed. You should ask your junior or senior resident to assess them with you if they were not already aware of their low count and active bleed. Once you've assured yourself that they are stable, then you can move forward with your assessment. Key points specific to thrombocytopenia on a history include whether they have a past medical history of any autoimmune conditions, as they can be more likely to develop ITP. It's also important to know if they have had previous gastric surgery, as this can lead to nutritional deficiencies. Don't forget to ask about alcohol use and symptoms or prior diagnosis of cirrhosis. In terms of history of presenting illness, you want to ask if they have started any new medications, if they have had any recent infections, whether they observe dietary restrictions that can predispose to nutrient deficiencies, and whether they have noticed any unusual or increased mucocutaneous bleeding. This includes epistaxis or nosebleeds, gingival or gum bleeding, heavy menses, easy bruising, or little red dots called petechiae. Always ask about constitutional symptoms, unintentional weight loss of 10% or more in 6 months, temperature greater than 38 degrees Celsius, and drenching sweats. Always complete your history with social history, including drug use, family history, and allergies. Next up is the physical exam. 
be sure to ask permission to examine the patient. Like we mentioned before, always start with vitals. Fever suggests infection or less common etiologies like TTP, and fever with hypotension and tachycardia should raise concerns for sepsis. Assess the patient for signs of mucocutaneous bleeding. Just like in the history, this means looking for epistaxis, wet purpura, blood blisters on the buccal mucosa and tongue, ecchymoses or bruising, and petechiae, which are non-palpable, non-tender, and non-blanching red dots. Keep in mind that petechiae and wet purpura really only occur when platelet counts are less than 10 to 20. Finish your focused exam by checking for lymphadenopathy, hepatosplenomegaly, and stigmata of chronic liver disease. Now it's time to order some investigations. There are seven tests that you should always consider. These include a CBC, peripheral blood smear, vitamin B12 level, HIV and hep C testing, coagulation tests, INR and PTT, and abdominal ultrasound looking for abnormalities of the liver and spleen. For the CBC, try to obtain prior counts if possible, and look to see if there is isolated thrombocytopenia, or whether multiple cell lines are affected which could suggest a bone marrow disorder, hemolytic process, or liver disease. On the peripheral blood, look for platelet clumping which can give a falsely low platelet count. Large platelets suggest platelet destruction. Fragmented red blood cells, called schistocytes, are concerning for a microangiopathic hemolytic process like TTP or HUS. Lastly, you can see hypersegmented neutrophils in vitamin B12 deficiency. Additional labs can be ordered depending on the full clinical picture. To assess for liver disease, check bilirubin, albumin, and INR. If they have indicators of SLE, systemic lupus erythematosus, like joint pains and malar rash, or antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, such as history of thrombosis or recurrent pregnancy loss, you should test for ANA and antiphospholipid antibodies. Finally, if they have anemia in addition to thrombocytopenia, screen for hemolysis by ordering reticulocyte count, LDH, haptoglobin, bilirubin, and Coombs test, and assess for iron deficiency with ferritin. What about a bone marrow biopsy? This is reserved for cases of unexplained thrombocytopenia, especially in patients with other concerning features on history, physical examination, or investigations. ITP is a diagnosis of exclusion and does not require a bone marrow examination in the presence of isolated thrombocytopenia and no other concerning features. Since there are so many different causes of thrombocytopenia, the management is beyond the scope of this podcast. The general principles, however, are to fix the underlying cause and support the platelet count with platelet transfusions if it is very low, usually less than 30, or if the patient is bleeding or going for surgery. However, just so we don't leave you hanging on the wards, here's how to treat three often discussed conditions. 1. ITP. Treatment is with steroids and or intravenous immune globulin and is given for severe thrombocytopenia, platelet count less than 30, or bleeding with a platelet count less than 50. Platelet transfusions are reserved for patients with platelet count less than 50 and active bleeding or urgent surgery because transfused platelets are also consumed in ITP. If the patient is going for surgery, treatment is given to increase the platelet count to over 50 in the case of most surgeries, or 100 in high-risk surgeries like brain or spine. 2. TTP. They need urgent plasma exchange. You cannot always get this overnight, so you can also give transfusions of FFP until exchange can be arranged. And 3. Heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, or HIT. All heparin should be stopped and anticoagulation provided with a non-heparinoid anticoagulant. Before we finish this podcast, we thought it would be a good idea to give you some facts about complications of platelet transfusions. Platelets are a blood product and therefore require consent before administration. These facts will get you started, but we've also provided some helpful links so you can read more. The main complications from platelet transfusions include the following. First, bacterial contamination. 
Platelets are stored at room temperature to prevent morphological changes that would otherwise occur at cold temperatures. This allows platelets to last longer in the recipient. Unfortunately, the trade-off is that room temperature also allows more bacterial growth. Platelets are therefore at a higher risk of bacterial contamination with gram-positive and gram-negative organisms than our red blood cell transfusions. The risk of bacteria in platelets is 1 in 2,000 versus 1 in 30,000 for RBCs. The first sign of this will be a fever in your patient, which should prompt further investigation for contamination if they also have rigors, chills, or hypotension. Second, volume overload. Platelet transfusions have volume. Each unit is approximately 200 milliliters of intravascular volume. However, practically speaking, the risk of transfusion-associated circulatory overload, or TACO, is only 3 per 100,000 with platelet transfusions, although it can be higher in patients with underlying cardiopulmonary disease. Look for shortness of breath and signs of volume overload, like crackles in the lungs and elevated JVP. Third, allergic reactions. These are relatively common in platelet transfusions, with symptoms of urticaria, pruritus, and even wheezing or shortness of breath in severe cases. They are caused by recipients' IgE directed against proteins in the donor plasma that surrounds the platelets. In mild cases without wheezing, you can simply give antihistamines. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Internet Work, titled Paucity of Platelets on Thrombocytopenia. Today's episode was written by Dr. Olivia Gein, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Deborah Siegel, hematologist, and Dr. John Neary, general internist. This episode was recorded and produced by Leah Karianopoulos. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and managed by Zara Morali and Leah Karianopoulos and is overseen by Dr. Daniel Brandt-Vegas. Music production by Lakshman Vasanthamohan. If you like this podcast, like and subscribe at wherever you get your podcasts. This is the internet work, and we hope you tune in again soon.